welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of Pole Position. I am really, I'm always excited, but this time I'm really excited because I have with me Halle Kohanski, who's a historian working on Polish history. She's written books like The Amazing, The Eagle Unbowed, Poland and the Poles in the Second World War, and her newest book, which is humongous, absolutely humongous, but we're only taking a section out of this book, which is Resistance, the Underground War in Europe, 1939 to 45. Hi, Halik, welcome to the uh, to the to the podcast well thank you for inviting me i'm looking forward to this because we're going to do poland today and then i've somehow managed to convince you to come and do a completely different aspect of resistance later on because you very well know you write about the polls um we know enough about the home army but for example i know nothing about the yugoslavian resistance for example well, I mean, my idea was to um, approach the resistance in Europe instead of not by the country by country basis, which is the traditional approach, but by a more chronological one. So, you know, each country had to approach its own problems in its own way. There were no links between countries, um, but they had more or less the similar tasks to overcome. I mean, security was inevitably a problem everywhere. Um, but also a question that arose was who was the enemy? Um, obviously, the Germans, but as you find in Poland, and we'll probably get on to, to that, but particularly in the Balkans, they spent as much time quarrelling with each other as they did fighting the Germans. At least the Poles did fight the Germans, but in the, in the Balkans, when we, when we come on to that, you discover there's more civil war than resistance. I love it. We're going to get you back on to do that. But today we're going to be focusing on Poland. So we'll start with a very simple question. I mean, for some people, this might not be a simple question, but I think we should define this anyway. So tell us what is a resistance movement and why would a group or a nation want to resist in the first place? Well, a resistance movement, one has to be careful to describe a movement because then that gives you the impression that this is something that you can join like a club or association. It wasn't. It started off in most countries as a group of people sounding each other out and deciding they wanted to do something to obstruct the Germans in some way. This could be sabotage. It could be the underground press. Um, it could be helping escaped allied um, servicemen, you know, all sorts of different functions. And these gradually come together to form a movement. Poland, however, was different because, first of all, it had a long history of resistance during the partitions, you know, with the uprisings in 1830 and 1863. So it already knew how to operate in a clandestine manner. In fact, it only had 20 years of independence. So the experience of, of operating underground was actually greater than that of government in many ways. 
So they already knew how to do it. Also, it was the whole constitution of Poland had allowed for the fact that the country might get overrun and you could have a government in exile. And so when it came to the resistance, as Warsaw was on the verge of falling, General Rommel, that's the Polish general, not the German one, said, you know, recognize the Polish army is defeated. It is now going to be an underground army and handed over commands to General uh, Karasevich um, Tokasuski. Um, and this was the handing over of the baton, much as Sikorsky took over the government in exile from the interned Polish government in Romania. So there was a continuity there. But that, that was forming what became the ZWZ, um, which would then develop on to become the home army or the AK. It's very interesting because some people, they don't quite realise what a resistance movement actually is. They seem to think that, you know, everybody knows who everybody is within the movement and they're all sort of buddies and they meet up, even though, you know, there's a German occupation happening. But they don't quite understand that even in the same household, some people just didn't even know. So, for example, my grandfather didn't know my great grandmother. They were both in the home army, yet they didn't know that they were both in the home army. That makes sense. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, they they quickly decided that the safest unit was a unit of five within a cell. And so there'll be lots of cells of five people. And those five would know each other, but they wouldn't know any other group of five operating out of the same household, as you just said, um, or elsewhere. Um, The only people who tended to know were the commanders, obviously, and the couriers. And this is why the Germans would often target the couriers, because the couriers had to take messages from one cell to another. Um, so, But, you know, the secrecy had to be tight. So talk us through what did the Polish resistance movement actually do? I mean, we know when it started. So just as Warsaw Falls in 39, we know how it's created. But what does it actually do? What does it actually do? Well, I mean, it does a variety of things. The first thing was to uphold the whole concept of Polish nationhood. Because unlike the partitions where the Poles still knew their identity, the Germans crushed Poland totally. Poland was split between the Soviet Union and Germany, and then part of Poland was annexed into the Reich, and the population deported out into what became the, the general government, the bit ruled directly by the Germans. Schools were shut, universities closed, professors shot. um, And the only purpose for the Poles to exist was as a labour force for the Germans. And so, you know, Polish artefacts were taken away. There was an erasure of the nation. And so the first thing was, in a sense, the battle of the mind, um, to show that you know we are still Poles, we have an identity. Um, and this took two forms. One would be the armed resistance through the Polish Home Army, but the second was the underground government, because Poland alone in occupied Europe had no collaborationist government and no collaborationist you know, high administration like the civil service. So the underground government was formed in departments matching, in effect, 
traditional governmental departments, except with the addition of the Directorate of Civil Resistance, um, obviously, to, to tell people how to behave, you know, whether to work slowly in factories, give the Germans wrong directions, um, you know, how, how to interact with the Germans, who they obviously had to because they, they couldn't ignore them totally. Um, it was this advice that was, in a sense, the civil resistance was just as important for Poland as the armed resistance. See, we don't actually ever talk about that. And it's never really mentioned in literature about the civil resistance. It's predominantly, they took up arms, they killed a German officer, they sabotaged a train line, rescued a train on its way to a concert, whatever it could be. That's what we predominantly talk about. We don't talk about the civil resistance. No, I mean, and I mean, the, the underground press was very important. I mean, the Bulletin Informazioni is um, the main underground newspaper. And this is what people read and they get hold of reasonably easily. I mean, you know, it's well published. It, it's a very well oiled operation to um, gather together the articles, print them up and distribute them. In, in a sense, it's a training ground for much of the resistance um, doing that work. And, you know, that's upholding the spirit and also discussing the future. You know, what will the future Poland look like? I mean, you know, so we discuss relations between you know, the, the Jews and the Ukrainians and Lithuanians and, and, you know, the other nations that have been within Poland um, before the war um, and also attitudes towards the Soviets, of course. Oh, yes, the Soviets. But- Oh yes, I mean we will we will come on to the to the Soviets. We will. I'm jumping. I'm jumping the gun. I'm not going to jump the gun. I promise. No. Sorry. Let's but, just but continue. They, but, but they learnt very quickly that armed resistance was too dangerous right from the start because um, as early as December '39, two German NCOs were killed outside Warsaw in Varva. The result was a hundred Poles executed in reprisal. And that shocked people sufficiently. It was too early for um, armed resistance, particularly after the fall of France in June 1940. The war is going to be a long one. Don't sacrifice lives needlessly. And the Polish, in the beginning, the Polish resistance was in very close contact with the Polish government in exile. Of course, once the Balkans fell and Italy entered the war. The courier networks became more difficult, but they did have some radio contact and couriers would go via Sweden. Um, So they would receive directives telling them, you know, in the long term, prepare for an uprising. In the short term, you know, keep the population on side, engage in sabotage where you can. And I mean, the first targets of sabotage um, before the invasion of the Soviet Union were the trains from the Soviet Union carrying vital war supplies to Germany, which passed through Poland. And the Poles learnt how to sabotage them so that the bomb would go off, not necessarily within Poland. It could go off once you crossed into the Reich. So no one knew who'd done it. Clever. I like that. It's very interesting. You mentioned the date that France fell. I mean, when Paris falls on the 14th of June, the first transport is on its way to Auschwitz and they don't even know that they're on their way to Auschwitz. But yeah. there's that moment when they arrive to Krakow station 
and they're greeted by the Mariatsky Herald. You know, you've got this this beautiful scene, and suddenly this whole station is festooned with swastikas, and everything that's saying through the through the microphones, uh, sorry, the um, the loudspeakers, is Paris has fallen, and I think it's a very poignant moment because suddenly they all had hope. Yes, and then hope was just ripped away. That was that's it. That's the end of it. What what are we going to face? Where are we going to go? Yeah. Okay, let's move on because we've got we've got a lot of questions, and I probably have some extra questions to add in here somewhere. <laughs> so we well we've spoken about the the home army, which originally is the Zevol Z, so the ZWZ. Sorry, have to put my Polish switch into English here. Were there any other movements apart from the Zevol Z, which turns eventually into the home army? I mean, there's got to be more than just one. Oh, I mean, certainly. I mean, the imperative to resist meant that um, they had to centralise the the resistance because there were at least a hundred uh, groups. Which that's gradually, a lot. That's a, that's that's a lot. I mean, that shows just how annoyed the Poles were about the, the German behaviour, um, and those were gradually did join the home army. The ones that stayed outside were the peasant battalions eventually cooperated closely with um, the AK, but they were always a bit suspicious as the AK as the gentleman's army. Um, Interesting. Did not know that. And, uh, uh, but, you know, they, they did cooperate in the rural areas. Um, outside was also the right wing I mean, that sort of got li- linked together into the NZ, NSZ. Um, and that was loyal to the pre-war government. So not to Sikorsky. It was harking back to the sort of right-wing authoritarian regime. And that, that was the part that was openly anti-Semitic, which, of course, has tainted the home army. But they, they stayed separate. And then, of course, after the um, creation of the Communist Party in Poland, um, there were the there was a communist resistance that always remained outside and indeed opposed to the aims of the Home Army. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that in a minute, the Soviet yeah. resistance, because that's yeah. uh, they play a massive role in the Warsaw Uprising, or the, one of the reasons for the Warsaw Uprising, which is quite interesting. But the 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 right wing army, I find I find that another thing. Everybody seems to think. That, I mean, I didn't. I, I knew there was a lot of resistance movements, but about a hundred, I wasn't quite sure there was that many. But you kind of think, or let's let me rephrase this: an outsider would look into it and think, "Oh, there's only the Home Army. That was the only resistance that was over in Poland. So they're all anti Semites and anti communist and hateful people." And I'm not saying that they weren't anti Semites. I mean, it's, it's worse up everywhere. Exactly. But at the end of the day, they, the whole home army cannot be tainted with this one brush because they obviously they did do things like try to rescue people and which we're going to get to this again. I'm jumping the gun way ahead of myself, as I always do. But we're going to talk about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising anyway. But, you know, they, they did what they could within the ramifications of what they could at the time. It is what it is. Anyway, moving on from my comments. We have another very big event, action, happening, whichever way we want to phrase this, that happens in uh, June 1941, and that is the Soviet Union is invaded by Germany. 
what how does this all change for the home army well first of all poland in a sense is reunited because uh, what had been the um the zone given to the soviets was now after the first week of the invasion back as one country from the polish point of view the germans of course treated it differently the east galicia joined the general government but otherwise the, the more northern bits the bit that's now in belarus and part of um that's in ukraine went into um, the commissariats that they organized for the sort of soviet union um but it it also showed there had not been that much resistance in soviet occupied poland simply because the nkvd you know the forerunners to the kgb was so much more effective at penetrating the resistance and knowing what was going on than the gestapo i could uh, make a comment there but i'm going to i'm going to hold back on that one um and and so but now the resistance the, the existing resistance could expand eastwards um, more effectively. And I mean, my grandfather, who was in Stanislavov, became involved in the Home Army at that stage. I mean, he'd been in hiding during the Soviet occupation because he, he would definitely have ended up being executed at Katyn if they got him. Um, oh, another whole kettle of fish. My God, do you know what? We could definitely go off on various different tangents yeah, here. But... We'll have to leave Cathy now. Okay. <laughs> We're talking about the resistance. Let's, let's, it's, it's, I'm going to try and stay focused. Stop asking random but, questions. But, but was, uh, the, you know, the, the Germans pulled the same sort of tricks on the population as they did in, they had already done. Like in... November 39, they had invited all the faculty of Krakow University to discuss the new curriculum at the beginning of the academic year and then promptly arrested 183 professors and sent them to most of them to concentration camps. They then did exactly the same thing in Lvov with the university and polytechnic there. Now, of course, Lvov did not know what had been happening in the German-occupied zone, so... You know, they they thought, okay, we we had the curriculum rearranged under the Soviets. Now it's going to be rearranged under the Germans. They went there quite innocently, but the Germans had been determined to wipe out the Polish intelligentsia because they knew that those Poles were likely to be the future leaders. I mean, but because you have to remember that if three thousand were killed by the Germans in the spring of nineteen forty, and thirty thousand were arrested, of which quite a proportion would die. Um, the, the Soviets had executed you know, all the political leaders along with the army officers at Katyn. And then you know, people like my father and his family who were deported to Kazakhstan never went back to Poland. Well, my father, the rest of the family did, but uh, my father didn't. And so, you know, Poland was short of, in a sense, the brain power, the people who, who had initiative and would do things. Agreed. My family too, they couldn't come back or they wouldn't come back. So both my both sides of my family. So I was also born and raised in the UK and my mother in the US. So Yes. Right. Okay. Let's um let's continue on with this. I mean so the NKVD are quite efficient. The Gestapo not so much. So when the Germans actually move into the eastern parts of Poland and into the Soviet Union, how do they respond to the resistance? 
Um, very, very harshly. I mean, uh, you have to remember that now Poland was lying in the German rear areas. And so the Dan they relied on the railway lines crossing Poland for their supplies. So any sabotage was punished very harshly. This is when you get the destruction of villages um, or local villages being ordered to act as guards along the railway and they would be executed if something happened in the locality. Um, you, you get a huge rise in terror. Um, before, when the Germans would, would at least try to work out whether someone was guilty, now you, you get public executions. And of course, people are terrorised because they can see what's happening to the Jews. This is the time of the, the Holocaust by bullet. And they know about that because they can see the Jews being herded away and they hear the gunshots. And so everyone is terrorized. In fact, the, the, you know, by mid-1943, the level of terror rises so that people would leave home and they had no idea if they would come back again. They could be taken for a hostage to be held to be executed later. They could be seized for forced labor. Um, you know, they could be executed on the spot for, you know, not even making an error that anyone would realise was an error, just as the Germans were annoyed with them. And, and terror lost the power to terrorise. And so, in a sense, the resistance started to increase, or at least became more popular, because you couldn't live with the Germans. You just couldn't pre even pretend that you could live with the Germans. I was just trying to look up a statistic, and I've completely forgotten the amount of people that were executed, and we're talking about Home Army members at this stage, just outside of uh, Vilna or modern-day Vilnos, it was something like two or 3,000 alongside the Jewish population and the local Roma and Sinti, because there's mass burial pits down there, just outside of Vilnos. And one of my historians was telling me about this the other day, and I've just completely forgotten the right statistic. So if anybody's actually listening to this, I will get Jerzy Rohoszynski to post up the actual statistics of this because it's it's incredible to the amount of executions that are just happening and of course the mass amount of of, of Polish Jews that are being murdered at the same time. Yes and and also you know the province of Stanislavov was effectively the personal fiefdom of one particular Nazi Kruger um, who basically did what he liked there you know, he, he, first of all, he wiped out the Jews and then, you know, even eradicated all signs that Jews had been there, like destroying all their cemeteries as well. Um, and the Polish population, those who had not been deported, because this is another thing you have to remember is that the Germans invaded Eastern Poland, but a, a large number of Poles that still disputed whether it's three quarters of a million or a million or, or however many had been deported into Siberia and Kazakhstan. They were the, you know, the future leaders of Poland. Um, so the population there, there were a large number of Ukrainians who, first of all, greeted the Germans enthusiastically until they realised that the Germans were going to be treating them just as badly as the Poles. Um, that the Germans were coming as conquerors, not as allies. So it was a very, very confused situation going on there with with basically just a, a loss of brutality i think that's uh quite it, it's funny but it's not funny 
with the idea of the Ukrainians because that was one of the reasons that the Soviets invaded was to liberate the Belarusians, the Ukrainians and ethnic minorities that the Poles are oppressing. It's just the amount of propaganda that comes out of both of these countries is just beyond ridiculous. Well, the thing is, you know, the Ukrainians certainly had already been looking for their independence. And so they would choose whichever side was most likely to support that goal. <laughs> and and the, the fact of the matter was no one was at that stage supporting their goal. No, I agree. Okay, so let's move away from Russia, Poland's eastern lands, and let's talk about the Jewish resistance, because there was Jewish resistance, there was Jewish resistance outside of the cities, but there was also one of the biggest acts of defiance, and we're coming up to next month, actually, the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and these men and women were literally going into battle knowing they would most likely die having to do this. So let's talk a little bit about the Jewish resistance. What did that look like? And was it just, like I said, with the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising? Um, no, it wasn't just the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. We'll, we'll start with Warsaw and, and then I'll go on with, with the others. But the, but the basic problem the Jewish resistance had, they faced several problems. One was the, the desire, do they resist? Because of the Germans using collective responsibility, um, and wiping out you know, localities in retaliation for um, the acts of just a few people who may even have left the area. Do you rise up in a captive community in the ghettos? Because one thing that keeps people alive is hope, that just maybe they will survive another day. So do you tell people, rise up, you will probably die now, um, but you will die... You know, fighting or not you know and and you read those debates that they had because some of them are, have been kept in writing they are absolutely chilling to read um so this decision this is why the great deportations of july 1942 were not resisted there wasn't the will to do that people were just overtaken by events and traumatized by them so sob the main jewish resistance movement didn't only really came into existence after that, when you had, in a sense, the strongest men and women left in the ghetto. And hence, you started getting more of a determination to resist. The first people they attacked were, were the collaborate, Jewish collaborators within the ghetto, you know, the, particularly the police leaders, um, before planning to oppose the Germans. The other thing is the relationship with the outside world, they were cut off. So they have very limited contact. And of course, they needed weapons. Now, the Poles were suspicious of whether the Jews would fight, because after all, they hadn't resisted the, the main deportations. And so in January 1943, when gunfire was heard from the ghetto, um, when the Germans did a sweep, then they thought, okay, the Jews are going to fight. But then there's a danger. The other thing is the tragedy of the timeline. The idea for launching an uprising was dependent on the Germans being on the point of collapse um, and liberation within reach. Well, we're talking about 1942-1943. This is the height of German powers. Um, they were still advancing towards Stalingrad during, during the time of the great deportations. All right, 
they had um, defeated, been defeated in Stalingrad in February 1943, but they were still deep in the Soviet Union. You have to remember that. So there was no chance that they were going to be free. So from the position of the Home Army, there was this fear that the ghetto uprising could spread outside into Warsaw, into a more general uprising, at a time when they were desperately short of weapons, and there was no purpose to an uprising. So, But for the Jews, it was different. I mean, the quote that I used is they were fighting for a few lines in the history books. Well, I didn't, in the Igor Ambald, obviously, I couldn't, didn't have much space for the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. But in um, my book, Resistance, I have two chapters on Jewish resistance to the Holocaust. One looking at what the um, non-Jews did or didn't do, and the other looking at the Jewish resistance more generally. So the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising is the most famous one, um, but there were also uprisings or at least resistances in in the other main ghettos like Vilna and Karnos, um, and not in Vuch. For some reason that Ronkowski, the rather dubious head of um, the ghetto, had effectively wanted to kind of cement his position. And so he got rid of the people who might threaten his position, the future leaders of the resistance quite early on there. Because there was this belief in the ghettos that, um, particularly in Vuch and Waristok, that you work would save you. So as long as you work for the Germans, had a purpose for the Germans, they weren't going to exterminate you. That, and creepily, that creepily gives me the the name Arbit Machfrei, so work brings no. you freedom. Yes, yes. And that's exactly what they thought. It's, it's the desperate need for hope. And so, you know, the resistance had problems within the ghettos, not not only whether there was any point of doing anything, but would they have any popular support? What was the relationship with the Jewish leadership in the ghettos? And in fact, I think it is Van Trunk has done a large book going through every single ghetto, analysing exactly how much support there was for resistance. But you have to understand that they had such limited options. It was easy, slightly easier for those um ghettos further east because then what they could do was say you know okay we're we're rising up in the ghetto but our purpose is not suicidal like zob in the warsaw ghetto but then to escape to the forests and become partisans and you know the tragedy of what it was eastern poland is now um belarusia and U- ukraine the western parts of them, with the forest there, is that they were full of opposing armies who would sometimes ally themselves with each other and sometimes fight each other. I mean, you had the home army partisans, the Jewish partisans, the um, Ukrainian UPA, and the Soviet partisans. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. What a melting pot, right? I mean, it was a dreadful melting pot because they're all competing for the same food resources. And they don't always have the same aims. And, you know, among that, the Jewish partisans are largely just looking to survive. Simple, simple thing, task, just survive. Okay, I liked that. That was uh, that was very interesting because I don't work so much on uh, on Jewish resistance. So I think I'd love to be able to do just a whole podcast on this. And funny enough, Joshua Zimmerman wrote a, a book about Jewish resistance in the Home Army. So I think I'm going to have to get Josh back talk about that because that sparks my piques my interest. I've got to stop this. I keep piquing my interest on everything, so I need to calm myself down and walk away sometimes. Okay, so I got asked a question on Twitter, which I gave in a very short tweet, managed to answer in a very basic way. But I think we should elaborate this a little bit more, especially on the podcast, because people don't actually realise what lives of the resistant members actually look like. What did they do? Did they have day jobs? Did they, I don't know, do resistance all day, make plans all day? What what was what was it like for them? Nope, the leaders were full-time resistors and they received financial support from agents dropping in great money belts from from London. Um, But most people had day jobs. Um, And resistance activities were kept to the evenings, nights and weekends, when the weekends in particular they would go off for weapons training. But no, the idea was very much to live as a normal a life as possible, because then you're less likely to be noticed. And um, also, they needed people living, that, you know, because communication is much easier if you know you go into um, some shop and you know by asking an innocent sounding question, you are um, actually passing on a, a pre agreed message. It's the, it's the safest way of communication rather than you know trying to hide messages somewhere which could be spotted by the wrong person. And so, so no, I mean, it, it was pretty normal existence. And, you know, one thing that comes with the resistance across Europe is that they had a lot of fun at the same time. You know, we think of all the tragedy of all the losses, but they they had a lot of fun. It was a sort of you know live hard today for tomorrow we die. Um, I can I can I can say that is a hundred percent true because my grandfather, even though he got Alzheimer's in his old age, he would relive and what we used to call his heyday because it was that's when he actually did something. He it was it was meaningful. You know he had his job. He still resisted. He was armed and everything else. So I completely agree with that. 
Sorry, if, if you, I don't know if you wanted to add anything else to that before. No, I, 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 there, there wasn't anything I particularly wanted to add. But you know, sometimes even the day job, though, I mean, one of my aunts was working in the Typhus Institute in Lvov, I think it was. And they had to be infected by typhus to try and create a vaccine. The Germans were desperately desperate for a vaccine against typhus. But that meant they had a supply of typhus-infected lice, which they could smuggle out and drop down the collar of a passing German um, in the hope that they'd get typhus. That's I mean, smart. That's that's very smart. There was an incident to get rid of uh, Leo Vitorik in Auschwitz, actually. And that's how the resistance movement in Auschwitz did that, to get rid of this couple. It was a horrible, horrible, sadistic son of a bitch. Yes, I'm saying son of a bitch because it was... No, I mean, that, that, that's right. Yes, no, they did it in Auschwitz as well, where, of course, they also had plenty of typhus infected lives. Very easily accessible. But that's still smart that they did that outside of the camps. I never thought that was possible. But that yeah. makes sense. That does make sense. Right. Anyway, some missions. This is obviously my favorite part of the podcast. There's got to be some missions that actually pique your interest. There's something that's just that comes to mind that was everything or one of the things. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, they they would do some humorous things, like they they would imitate the um, German posters exactly, exact typeface, exact colouring, everything. It was just with a different message. I nearly um, spat my my drink out just there, by the way. And, and one thing they did do was use those to announce that there'll be a public holiday on the 1st of May, 1943. And even the Germans were taken in. Oh, until, you're joking. Until it was the sort of middle of the day when the Germans were, who ordered this? And they suddenly realised no one had ordered it. Oh, my God. So... It's smart, I mean, though. There, there, there were a lot of tricks they paid. It was like they, they, they carried out theft of, of a whole lot of money and the Germans offered a reward for information leading to the arrests of those involved, whereupon the Home Army promptly offered an award for information to enable them to carry it out again. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's brilliant. And the, and the thing is that you get so many bits of the, the they are constantly teasing the Germans, and there's so many examples that you think, honestly, why did they try to conquer the Poles? <laughs> the Germans do not have a huge sense of humour. The Poles do. And they just tease them and tease them and tease them. I mean, like one time they stole a statue and someone spotted this. And so he painted footprints leading from the statue to where the Germans had hidden it. And then in black paint on the white wall, wrote i am here signed <laughs> oh dear god i love that that's so clever but it, you know a mission that that did change the war in in many ways was they had been monitoring the fire, test flights of the v2 weapons and then one went off course and the home army got to it got to the wreckage before the germans cleared the wreckage, hid it, got some people who would understand what this was down from Warsaw to draw it, photograph it, 
and work out which bits were most vital to get back to London. And then you get uh, Wild Horn 3, the sending of a plane from Italy to collect the parts and the two people who could understand what these parts were and bring them back by Italy to London. And I mean, I mean, it, it was an enormously complex operation because there was a German airfield very close by. Um, and they managed to, to get those back because the British knew that these weapons were being developed, but they had actually had far less knowledge of rocket science than the Germans. So a lot of the British ideas you know, were way off course. Um, and so, so finding out um, you know, what the rocket, how, how it was put together, was incredibly important. I mean, it didn't really help with the defences against it, but at least they now knew what, what the capability was and how it was fired as well. They also managed to get hold of um, some of the fuel that turned out not to be the main... I think it was the ignition fuel rather than the propellant, but, you know, standing around in, in, the, in the railway station pretending that, um, you know, the stuff that's burning a hole in my pocket and me, there's it's nothing unusual going on. Oh, dear God. <laughs> the man was more upset about his trousers being wrecked than the fact that his leg got burnt. <laughs> Maybe they were a nice pair of trousers. Well, shortage of clothing in wartime Europe. <laughs> so losing, having a damaged pair of trousers did matter. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, you know, the Polish intelligence was perhaps one of, one of the most important. I mean, I mean, the, the, it was admitted after the war that you know, um, a huge percentage of valuable intelligence that came from occupied Europe came from Polish sources. This is mostly from Poland, but also from Poles who were forced labourers in Germany and those who were working in France. Um, intelligence was very useful because as the strategic, Allies' strategic bombing campaign of Germany increased, a lot of factory production got moved into Poland. And so the Poles were able to have a look-see at you know, German weapon development and report that back. I think, obviously, my favourite mission has to be my, my grandfather's mission. I'll be very, very, very quick, I promise. So he was part of KEDIV, so the sabotage unit, ODB-3, trying not to say that in the Polish way, and they operated in the centre of town and they were sent to execute a Pole who had been working alongside the Gestapo and he was an informant and he was also executing Poles. No idea why. Apparently my grandfather said that he was a really big, massive guy. This this has meaning in a minute. Why? And finally, one day they got their opportunity. His girlfriend died. So they went to Brudno Cemetery, which is on the opposite side of, uh, of Warsaw. And there was four of them and they managed to shoot him. So my grandfather went first with a pistol, shot him. Uh, he was still standing for some crazy reason. The next guy goes, which was his best friend. Now and shoots him. He's still standing. Then comes the platoon leader, who was uh, Jan Putulitsky, does him in with a, um, a, a, a what do you call it, karabin. God, the word has escaped my mouth, my my mind. A um, a machine gun. That's the word I'm looking for. And he finally falls, but he's still. This guy is still alive. He's been shot multiple times. And what the the final guy starter finally shoots him in the head. The guy's dead. But the problem is, is that you're hearing 
gunshot fire and there's a local unit not far who hear this so these guys these four home army members including my grandfather are running through the cemetery they get to a tram and they jump on the tram and the platoon leader's like to my granddad he's like Zwami, come on like go let's go 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 my granddad starts because you have to turn the dial on on a tram now they're a bit different than modern trams and they're they're going and the tram conductors train driver sorry a tram driver starts running behind them and he's like no what are you doing so then he's like you're part of the home army they're like yeah we need to get away we need to get away so they basically jump uh, the tram driver jumps on, takes the controls, and they start driving through. They get towards the river and they jump off and they see a truck, a German truck standing on the side of the road with this guy chatting to these uh, to these girls. And they grab him. My granddad puts a gun to his head and he's like, we need your truck. We need your truck. And the guy's like, all Polish. He's like, oh, so hold on. Are you guys part of the home army? He's like, yeah, we need your truck. We need your truck. So he's like, I'll help you. Don't worry. Two of the guys jump in the back of the truck. My grandfather and the platoon leader into the cabin onto the floor with this guy. And he starts driving across the uh, across the bridge. Now, the problem is, if anybody knows the story of what happened with the execution of uh, Franz Cotera, will know that at one stage, two the two home army members got stuck on a bridge and were basically surrounded either side from from either side of Warsaw and they jumped into the river and and died because it was freezing cold at the time and but this was a possibility of this happening so he meets this unit and he's like yelling in German this is for the this is for the the, the Deutschland this is for the motherland I've got to go move 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 and they let him go and they just drive across this bridge and he manages to let them out in a safe place. I've got all of this documented. It's mm. absolutely beyond insane what they did. And they got mm. away with it and they survived. Yes. Sorry, mind blowing. Anyway, yep. away from my own history and my own talking. So the at this point, we've now got the Germans are being defeated in, in Russia. The Russians are pushing back. So the Soviets are now approaching Poland. We're looking at 1944. What does the resistance movement do? Well, it began in '43 when the events in eastern Poland really started erupting, when the Ukrainians started wiping out the the Poles um, remaining in the area. That they had they had to resist that, which did involve some collaboration. It has to be said with the Germans in order to get weapons for self defense. But the main thing started. Um, in January 1944, when the Soviets crossed the pre-war border, not what the Soviets considered the Polish border, but the pre-war border. And a lot of communications to and from London say, what do we do? What do we do? Because this is a period when Poland and the Soviet Union do not have any diplomatic relations. So they can't consult the Soviets. What would you like us to do? There is a huge discussion going on within Poland and in London, should the Home Army come out into the open? And this is a point when the, the Home Army had been totally respectful and under the orders of the government in exile, but now they're dealing with the Soviets on the spot. And the, that government is saying, well, in this eventuality, do this, in that eventuality, do that. So we need to be told what to do. So as they come in, um, Borg Komorowski, who's taken over from Raveshi, who'd been arrested in April 1940, no, June 1943, um, issues orders for Operation Borsa, or 
tempest English way, which is basically the uprising in Eastern Europe. And this is the Home Army coming out into the open to facilitate and work with the Soviets to liberate what the Poles consider is Poland. And so they work together to liberate Kowal, Vilna, Lvov um, before they cross the line of the Bug, which is the current border, towards Lublin. And they discover that um, the Soviets appreciated the Poles fighting with them, but their conduct immediately after the fighting stops highlighted all the Polish fears of the relations between them. Because what happens is that the units are invited for, you know, maybe for congratulations, for maybe for discussions of further operations. They're surrounded, disarmed, um, officers often executed um, or sent to Siberia. Um, the rank and file given the choice of Siberia or join the first Polish army, which is the Soviets commanded Polish army um, coming in with the, the main Soviet forces. Um, and this has a totally you know, shocking effect on Borkomorowski and the, the home army. And this is part, you know, partly leads to the Warsaw Uprising. We will do this independently. We're not going to fight for Warsaw along with the Soviets. We are expecting the Soviets to come very quickly to help us, but we are going to liberate ourselves. Of course, it doesn't work like that um, for numerous reasons. There are just so many misconceptions that led to the tragedy of the Warsaw Uprising that, you know, it need a podcast in itself to, to uh, you know, on the Warsaw Uprising and there are others who can talk about that with more expertise than than I can. Oh, I agree. I mean, there's so many different things. I mean, to be honest, nobody really expected everything to happen in the way it happened. Nobody expected it to be 63 days. Nobody expected for there to be 180, well, between 150 to 180,000 deaths involving in the Warsaw Uprising. But I I understand why they did it. Oh yes, I, mean, I, th- I think I can understand. I do. I do remember an argument I had with a fellow historian. He said, "But it didn't make sense." I said, "You don't understand that this desire for self liberation was so strong." You know, at the same time, you have the uprising in Warsaw, the uprising in Paris, Slovakia go- goes up. Um, Italy had already liberated Naples itself, would then go and liberate the northern towns as well, right as the war is ending, Prague rises up. You know, this, this whole idea for self-liberation is terribly important. Although, you know, as a military operation, it doesn't make sense. No, it, it's no, I agree. I've actually had arguments with uh, historic, military historians, actually, on this subject. And I said, but you're factoring just the military side you can't you have to factor in ideology and politics into this you can't have one without the other two it just especially in eastern and central europe it makes no sense yeah. it makes absolutely no sense he was like oh well you know the reason that the soviets didn't cross the border was because they didn't have it's a whole like i said you just mentioned it's a whole other podcast and a whole other idea of, of ranting yes <laughs> But let's stick with this, because uh, you mentioned the Warsaw Uprising. Let's stick with this. You've also mentioned that there were uprisings 
in in Paris, there were uprisings in Prague, in Italy, and the idea of self-liberation. But were there any other home, uh, home army uprisings in Poland? Not within Poland itself. It was focused on Warsaw and you know, the liberation, obviously, of the, the towns. But it was the crushing of the Warsaw uprising. And also, I mean, the way they did it, that, that the whole of Poland was then evacuated of its population and the Germans then came and systematically destroyed every single important building in the city, you know, having stolen its contents, was so devastating. And that with the fact that the Polish government in exile had failed to send reinforcements, failed to secure flights of supplies, and airdrops and the Soviets had just stood by and watched it and you know, their supplies that they they had vast quantities of German weapons which they could have dropped and they okay, had enough German ammunition to fire it instead they dropped Soviet weapons and they don't have the ammunition the mass uh, the mass drops started happening just at the end the Warsaw uprising was ending and it was like what's the point in you sending weapons now when we all know it's coming to a close they've wiped out the old town They've wiped out Śródmieście, so the midtown. They've wiped out Mokotov, and they're heading to the rest of it. What What's the actual point now? Um, well, I mean, it, it was just to, you know, to please Churchill and Roosevelt because they've been putting so much pressure on, and they've been basically almost threatening to stop Lend-Lease unless anything was done. And the Soviets, you know, their historiography denies it, but basically they needed, um, particularly the American trucks, for their advance, but it, you know, it totally demoralizes the the Polish resistance, um, the Home Army. You know, they feel that the, they're not fighting for anything more. You know, that there were still units for, um, informed in, in towns further west, but you know, what what was the purpose of it? You know, they they just couldn't decide what to do, and the fact that the Soviets were just arrests them and treat them so badly um you know and i think this was the last thing that we were going to discuss is is you know how the soviets <clears throat> treated the home army well you know that they they treated them largely as criminals and this went on after the war once the communist polish communist government had taken over that those people were persecuted for a long time, you know, they didn't get university places, didn't get promotion at work. They were always seen as politically suspect. I mean, my I mentioned my grandfather earlier. I mean, he he was in Stanislaw and he was captured by the NKVD. And, uh, and then they killed him. And what they were after was anyone who'd had any contact with the government in exile. What's also really interesting is I've mentioned Vinlo as well earlier, but there were in in one night there were eight thousand people deported from Vinlo, modern day Vilnius, into into Siberia, um, and more specifically, this transport was sent into Kutaisi in Georgia, and these kinds of transports were happening all all around, and I think the last transport was in nineteen fifty two. And the reason it was in 1952 was because apparently the NKVD was so busy arresting all of these Poles and dealing with other things 
that they just didn't have the time to be deporting these people. And we're talking about not a few hundred people being deported. We're talking about Poles specifically. We're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people being deported. And we this is another thing. We just don't talk about this. Polish historians do. We talk about this. But the Western world has absolutely no idea that Poland was not free. Oh, uh, no, I think they understand that Poland was not free, but they still can't get over this hurdle that was drummed into them during the war of Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe is on our side. Because oh, this, yes. is why, this is why the Poles, you know, such, such as my father, who, who'd been deported to Kazakhstan, learned not to talk about their experiences because they couldn't quite believe that British people would not believe that Stalin could behave like that. This is why there was a huge fuss over the Katyn Memorial as well, because people preferred to believe the lie that the Germans did it rather than that it happened in 1940 and therefore had to be the Soviets. They, they couldn't overcome their love of wartime Stalin and the fact that for the Poles, yes, I mean, it, it was a, a defeat. I always end... Uh, one of my talks on, on resistance with it was a defeat in Poland, you know, as the smoke cleared from the battlefield and they looked around and they realized this was the start of a new o- occupation. Exactly. And I completely and utterly agree. I think this is a great place to be able to stop. However much I still want to talk about this for the next 45 minutes to an hour to three. Halik, thank you so much for joining me. Just remind our listeners the name of your book so we can go out get it obviously i have my copy everybody else has to go buy themselves a copy and just to make sure do not buy from amazon buy it from your local bookshop because we don't want to give the amazon people all the money oh well yes please um my latest book is resistance the underground war in europe 1939 to 1945 and the other book because i actually think this is a very important yeah, book the and other I... book is the, the eagle unbowed poland and the poles in the second world war that book is also quite important. However much I like your resistance book, I also think your first book is very important. It gives a really good overview of Polish history, especially for somebody who has no idea what they're doing. And it's great to read. It's easy to read. It's understandable. And you make everything so relatable. So if you don't want to get the resistance book, then definitely go out and buy the buy, buy the Eagle Unbowed. Both are fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book